Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network's coverage of the 2019 Coastal States Organization Fall Membership Meeting is provided by Coastal Transplants, making dunes grow through consultation, vegetation, sand fencing, and maintenance. Coastaltransplants.com. And accommodations provided by Troy Giles and the Palms Resort and Cafe on the Beach. PalmsResortCafe.com. If you're looking for the most charming place to stay in South Padre Island, go to the Palms Resort and Cafe. Welcome everybody back to the Coastal States Organization meeting here in South Padre Island, Texas. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the American Shoreline Podcast. And Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Our first great guest uh, from the conference. Thank you very much. We are welcoming to the show Shepard Smith, the Rear Admiral at NOAA and the Director of the Office of Coast Survey. Admiral Smith, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here, Peter. Well, I had the privilege of listening to your brief remarks uh, to the conference uh, just a bit ago, and uh, we're very glad to have you on the show because I think so many people do not understand uh, NOAA as an organization and as a federal agency, but in particular, and nor did I, the branch that you occupy. So can you give our, our, our audience an overview of your role at NOAA and what is the Office of Coast Survey? Sure. Uh, so I am a rear admiral in the NOAA commissioned corps. Uh, out of the 12,000 NOAA employees, there are 321 of us uh, that wear a uniform um, and are involved uh, primarily in the operation of our ships and aircraft and, and in the management of some of our programs that are heavily dependent on those ships and aircraft. Uh, so in, in my day job, I'm the director of the Office of Coast Survey, which is the oldest part of NOAA, uh, uh, charged by President Jefferson to survey the coasts uh, and reduce the, 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 the damage to our shipping that was being done by, by uh, unmarked shoals and, and, uh, and other hazards at sea. So we, are, we make a, a suite of about 1,000 nautical charts, electronic and paper, for U.S. coasts. Uh, all the way, all the way, all the way, uh, to, you know, to, from the Arctic to the Keys, uh, and uh, and distribute those to to all uh, every every boat on the water from uh, from from uh, from the from the kayak that might be navigating with an iPhone uh, to the to the super tankers that have uh, that have uh, highly regulated ECTUS and paper systems on board. Unbelievable! And this is this is what was fascinating to me: three hundred and twenty-one uniformed officers within the corps. Mm-hmm. And are y'all naval commissioned? Is it? No, it's a separate service. Okay, uh, we we trace our roots back to uh, to the Coast and Geodetic uh, uh, Survey Officer Corps that was that was uh, uh, was founded in nineteen seventeen during the during World War One. Uh, when Navy and Army officers that had been serving similar roles were were all called away to war, and uh, and so we I see. Have, we have continued that service and and uh, uh, in many in most of our major conflicts the NOAA Corps officers have been involved not uh, not because we can shoot a gun uh, but because we have access to great observation and scientific capabilities that are that are that are of importance to the nation. Absolutely. Fantastic. And, and I think I have uh, the few times that I've been on a boat. My brother-in-law has a boat. We've been up in Alaska. We've been through uh, 
the Prince William Sound area. We've been around Petersburg, Alaska, and we're navigating with very specific charts that I believe you are responsible, your organization is responsible for providing, and uh, the accuracy of these things is critical to mariners all over the world, uh, professional folks and in in, in, in military uh, folks, but also the recreational boating public. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, this scientific and mapping technology and what the agency does. How is that all put together every year? I'm glad you brought up Prince William Sound, uh, and I take a particular pride in that myself. That because that's where I that's where I first started my service with NOAA was in was in Prince William Sound. I joined the NOAA ship Rainier in Valdez, Alaska, wow. uh, and uh, and surveyed uh, over the course of three successive years uh, most of Western Prince William Sound and uh, some of the most breathtaking uh, uh, scenery uh, scenery in the U.S. Uh, and we uh, we got to we got to explore the all the nooks and crannies and details along the coast. Um, in those days, it was a uh, uh, early computer systems uh, with with uh, single beam echo sounders measuring the depth of the water directly underneath the boat, uh, and we drive back and forth uh, uh, with the spacing dependent on the level of detail that we thought we needed, and we we made those judgments in the boat at the time. Um, with very early GPS systems, again, uh, and and um, and we really didn't have uh, on-screen GIS type 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 mapping capabilities. Um, since then, we have uh, we have uh, improved not only the sonar systems so that we have much more detailed uh, uh, information about the seafloor. So now I, I I say that you can now see the seafloor, um, including rocky outcrops on a muddy bottom and sand waves. Uh, and iceberg scours and the the, the uh, you know uh, coral reefs and the scours left behind by uh, by by trawlers uh, wow. when they're when they're scouring on the you know when they're when they're trawling the seabed uh, and um, uh, gas seeps that are that are related with seabed uh, seabed uh, petroleum deposits uh, wow. and, uh, and 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 the the details of the the characteristics of the seabed um, that you can tease out from the from the details of the sonar echo itself. So sand gives a different echo than rock, that gives a different echo than, than mud. Uh, and so now, we, you know, what we used to have very, very uh, thin data, we can now have these really rich maps of the seafloor that are not only uh, suitable for really high-precision navigation, but also for the, the the types of use that coastal managers and uh, and and offshore energy folks um, uh, and 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 fisheries managers need as well. It's fascinating. I've, I've and you're you're right because I've been seeing uh, imagery when we run the news every once in a while. We'll find you know some sort of side scan or is that what it's you guys are using is a side scan sonar sure there's actually two different types that we use we do use side scan uh, you can cover a very wide area uh, with a with a single pass usually from a toad a toad um, towfish uh-huh. uh, with a with the side scan but it doesn't actually give you the three-dimensional structure of the seafloor it only gives you uh, a, it's 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 sort of like looking at the seafloor um, right. In, instead, so you can see very fine details, um, but you can't turn it into a, a three-dimensional model. Um, and so we use that to find shipwrecks or, or yeah. very small things like a piling um, that, that might be a hazard to navigation. Right. And in, and in sh- very shallow water. 
And and you so that's one type, and you mentioned another type. Yeah, and the second type is called multi-beam sonar, uh, and and so this this works by instead of having a, a single uh, depth immediately underneath the boat, um, we can essentially point the sonar beam um, through fancy electronics in a in a direction way off to the side. Um, so in in one pass, we could get up to say uh, you know five hundred different measurements of the seafloor every ping. So wow. it could be thousands. Directionally directed. Exactly. Thousands sonar. of measurements per second. And that allows you to get kind of a topographic uh, mapping? Exactly. Um, right down to the details of small sand waves and and And, 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 uh, you know, and then you, I suspect you combine those two datas. Is that right? We can by draping the, the sort of texture of the side scan or the backscatter over, over the the, the, the three-dimensional model. Right. Um, and those two different types of information about the structure of the seafloor and what it's made of um, are the components you need uh, to, to, uh, for habitat mapping or uh, uh, exploration of the seabed to looking for, for minerals or different, uh, different, different types of, 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 uh, of sediment on the seafloor. That is just so cool. And it is, and I think that uh, all of this leading to the production of, of digital maps, uh, nautical charts, very up-to-date data made available to the public. Tell us a little bit about the NOAA fleet. How many, how many ships do we have in NOAA, and, uh, and, and how many of those do you, are you responsible for managing? Sure. We have, uh, we have 15 ships in NOAA, and they have uh, specialized equipment, uh, some that are general to, to a variety of different missions, some that are very specialized. Uh, so we have, we have four ships that are, that are specialized for ocean mapping, and they not only have the, the, the types of sonars that I described on board the ship, but they also carry survey launches that can operate in shallow water, in waters that are more uh, uh, where the ship can't, where the ship itself can't, uh, can't, can't operate. Like a smaller craft that can be launched? Is that exactly. exactly. Can you describe these ships? I mean, just for our listeners, you know, uh, paint, talk with pictures here. We've got, how big are they? Uh, sure. What do uh, they look I'll, like? So the, so the last ship I commanded was the NOAA ship Thomas Jefferson, based out of Norfolk, Virginia, um, and with a crew of 35, uh, 208 feet long, built in the, built in the early 90s as a, as a hydrographic survey ship. Uh, and uh, it has endurance of, of two or three weeks. Uh, and the, the launches that it carries are each about 30 feet long and can carry two or three people for the whole, for, for, uh, for a whole day uh, surveying in, in, the, in coastal waters. Um, the typical sort of mission of the year is maybe, maybe eight or nine months at sea, um, during which uh, we're usually out for two weeks and in for a long weekend, out for two weeks and for a long weekend. Uh, in order to resupply the ship and and change out some crew and and uh, and fix all the things that broke in the previous two weeks, uh, and uh, and but uh, but that the, although we're based in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, those the the places where we make call and our port calls would be would be anywhere where we are working uh, in the in the project area. You know, uh, one of the things I heard when you were giving your talk, I just had to, I was in and out. I was editing another show. Such as it is here, but um, you talked about uh, your frame of reference of, of the coast being, you know, from the water. And this is interesting because one of the original kind of inspirations for starting this whole podcast network was on a boat looking back at land 
uh, and tell tell us a little bit about the what the zone is for you in mapping the coastal areas. Like, what does that entail? How far out do you go? Well, and and real quickly, I think the phrase you used, which I also wrote down, I thought it was captivating, is we're here with all these coastal managers, folks who are looking at the nearshore waters from the perspective of upland land uses primarily. Mm-hmm. And you said, I, I look at this from the water near the land, not the land near the water. Exactly. Yeah, talk to, about, talk to us about that perspective and the difference of what that means. Uh, so, so you know, in the, in the, 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 the core details of what were the types of maps that we make, they end at the at the at the at the shoreline. They cover all the water part and end at the shoreline because they're maps made for ships, um, and the ships can't go past the shoreline. So right. that, so so that's where we, you know, the land is where we put all the the, the marginalia and the title blocks and the, uh, right. uh, you know, the, the, the legend, the notes and the legend and stuff is on right. the land part. Right. Um, but uh, but but the in the sea part is where we put all of our all of our mapping detail. Well, let's talk a little bit about this product. And here's what I, I, I think is interesting, Admiral, is the government's investment here in, in, in this scientific exploration of the water. It's, both, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's practical in terms of shipping information, for sure, nautical charts, but it's much more than that. The investment that the government makes with the crews that they put together, 321 commissioned officers, there's hundreds of people involved in, in the exercise of this uh, enterprise that you are part of. Uh, and we make that available to the public, the products, the information, and the data. Uh, talk to us about the history of that, and that is unusual in the world that the United States government does it this way. Can you talk about that perspective? Sure. Uh, so we, we make nautical charts available uh, so the, primarily for navigation uh, to, uh, to, to every, all mariners on the ocean. Um, in, in, the, in the old days, we made paper charts that we printed ourselves uh, and and distributed through government offices and and sold for basically the cost of printing and distributing them. Um, we never really charged for the information. Right. Uh, it's always been the cost of the of the media. And now found in <coughs> in coastal restaurants all around the United States are <laughs> That's are Noah nautical charts from 1938 for Cape Cod. You know, I mean, I've seen them all, and you know, they're great. People love these things. It's part it's part of the iconography of the coast. It is. Uh, it really is. So it's lighthouses and charts are 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 are, are, a, are a staple of it, um, but we you know we we because we know we don't charge for the information. Um, uh, we're committed to delivering as much value as we can for the rather large investment that you, you described for for maintaining these big databases and and uh, and all of our our at sea surveying work. And if we charged even a little bit. Um, then, then your average iPhone user would say, "I'm not going to pay five bucks for that, um, even if it, even if it, uh, you know, even if right. it's worth that much, um, because mm-hmm. that paywall cuts down so much." And as a result, um, because the information is free in the United States, we have um, not only uh, uh, you know a huge boating industry. It's estimated that about half of the recreational boats in the world are in North America. And uh, wow. and supported by these by these by these free services, but in addition, the the uh, the software industry and the app market yeah. um, it, are almost all American companies because they are built they are building value on top of uh, on top of a public resource um, and and building a, a you know a pretty significant economy uh, you know on top of our free services and absolutely essential products. I mean, I, I was the last time I was up uh, in, in British Columbia on a boat, 
uh, we were navigating through some pretty narrow channels. I am not a mariner. I did not grow up on boats or in water. But I was at the helm, and I had a digital map in front of me that was incredibly accurate, and it and felt quite comfortable steering through these passages that historically back in the day, when Cook and the other early uh, folks who, who came up to the Alaska shoreline were crashing into things underwater all the time, and it was a very, very dangerous place to sail, but because of the work you guys do, no longer. Sure. Well, I, of course, have to observe that British Columbia is our Canadian. Yes. Uh, our Canadian colleagues maintain those charts and, okay. uh, and uh, at the same level okay. of professionalism that we do for <laughs> for U.S. charts. But uh, <laughs> but uh, but okay. absolutely. And and uh, we've done we've spent an enormous amount of time uh, in surveying in in Alaska ever since we bought it from the Russians in the yep. 1860s. Um, and the uh, the the work that we have done has essentially opened up new fisheries and new areas for. Uh, for for uh, for potential use uh, going down the Alaska coast, and now that work with the receding ice um, is now carrying yeah. into the Arctic um, and and opening up essentially a whole new coast um, that we that we are responsible for charting. Um, but it's a very difficult place to work. Let's talk about that a little bit because we, of course, I think people around the world have been noticing, of course, the, the decline in sea ice in the Arctic, uh, but in particular. The efforts, the geopolitics in this region of the world are quite complex already. Uh, the assertion of claims by Russia, Norway, Canada, the United States, even China has got an icebreaker now moving into uh, the Arctic waters to start to survey uh, the potential minerals and also fish and uh, what can be exploited and harvested. I call this the last great land rush on planet Earth. This is the last time I think we will ever find territory that is this untouched, unexploited, unutilized by the human population. I call it the last great land rush. Uh, I assume that you have been charged in, in NOAA's uh, organizational picture. The, the group of people have been charged with trying to get a handle on this region of the post, as you said, the newest coastline. Can you talk about what, what's going on up there and what your responsibilities are in the Arctic? Yeah, sure. Uh, I I think there's a it's a as you say it's a it's a whole new coast, and the 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 trick is that we need to we need to understand we need to understand it before we can hope to protect it and manage yeah. it well and and responsibly and sustainably use the resources in that region. Um, but it's a bit of a rush um, to uh, to understand it um, before we before we affect it. Uh, and it's a and and even in understanding it, we have the risk of affecting it. Right. And so we uh, so we're going into it very very carefully. Um, uh, and and uh, we're looking at some really innovative ways of trying to trying to work up there, uh, with with unmanned long and high endurance unmanned systems, for instance, mm -hmm. that would allow us to have, you know, essentially the equivalent of dozens of ships operating during the very short. Uh, uh, Arctic right. sailing season, intense period uh, of use, uh, uh, so that we so that we can uh, we can we can hope to accelerate our understanding of the Arctic. Um, but I, you know, the the United States has has been a little bit slower than than some of the other Arctic nations in investing uh, heavily in the in in our understanding and building infrastructure and and capabilities up there. Um, but I'm I'm pleased to say that to, to to see that that's starting to turn around, and uh, very very pleased with the U.S. Coast Guard's 
investment in in icebreakers. The, the, yeah. the set of six. The first is first is uh, in the it's you know starting starting in the works and building laying the keel down. I yep. think is what they call that. As yep. I recall, Admiral. <laughs> Indeed. And so it's uh, so uh, you know I think we're we're starting to we're starting to catch up and, uh, and right. But uh, but there's a, but it's a very difficult region to work. It's competitive. I mean the Russians have uh, have completed a nuclear-powered uh, icebreaker that they've deployed into the region. They've, they've created a, a floating nuclear power plant that they're towing up to the Arctic Circle to power new communities. They've got LNG export terminals already up above the Arctic Circle. I mean, we, I just look at it, I think this is kind of an amazing thing to, to witness uh, at this point in the 21st century on planet Earth to see this kind of draw to an area that has really been mostly untouched. And uh, I wanted to ask uh, about that, uh, about the shipping safety responsibilities up there. Uh, there's apparently a possibility of, uh, of, of crossing the Northern Passage, I guess is what it's called, to be able to navigate across the top of North America. Uh, is that something that you guys are going to be involved in the charting and mapping and how... Boy, how much time? That seems like a lot of work. That seems like a big well, very, job. Very much so. Um, the The projections are: uh, it, it, ships have made it uh, over the over the top, um, and on the on on the U.S. and Canadian side. If you think of the Arctic as having sort of two sides, yeah. Uh, if you go up through the Bering Strait, which is the way you have to get to the Pacific, you can either turn right and go across uh, across the top of Alaska. Uh, and then the top of Canada, come out over by Greenland, right. or you can turn left and mm-hmm. and go all the way along the coast of Russia yeah. uh, and come out near Norway. And um, and the 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 way that it, the the melting ice has uh, the the way that the, the way that it is melting is the Russian side has a has a climate advantage really? of about 20 or 30 years over the North American side really? um, because the ice is is melting there earlier and the and sh- and shifting against the North American side interesting um, and so they there this is a, this is a going business on the Russian side already yeah. they they have not just one nuclear icebreaker but dozens uh, for wow. uh, for or dozens of, of heavy icebreakers that that they escort ships over over the Arctic. Um, I I was in Murmansk um, just just a few weeks ago in September um, and got to see the very first nuclear icebreaker called wow. the Lenin, uh, and uh, we had a had a had a tour on board. Uh, but that that operated starting in the 1950s. Would uh, you give us your impression of that vessel? Sure. I mean, it was uh, it clearly it was a national uh, a national treasure for the for the Soviet Union. It was a, a, a immense pride. It was in the in the furnishings of the ship and the sort of elegance of the design outside of the propulsion. When you say the Soviet Union, do you is it an older vessel? Yeah, when built it was in commissioned. 1950s. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, back in the day. Wow. So in fact, it was decommissioned so this, in the Soviet Union too. Oh really? In, in and the eighties. So, and then it's, now it is back. Um, so it's so you know it itself is is a museum piece. Oh okay uh, okay I'm so in, sorry in Murmansk yeah oh it's, wow it's there as a as a showpiece they've, okay they've filled the reactor course with concrete oh wow and, uh, but the but the ship itself so so it's a you know it was a a, a really well built ship for the 1950s and uh, and a point of national pride very some very elegant uh, very very elegant touches on board on how that on how it was put together uh, but it was a you know it was a uh, it was a it was an important 
technological breakthrough that allowed the Soviets to, to operate in Arctic waters. During I would period. I would love to get I'm sorry, Peter, I know that this might be a little far afield, but I just I'm just so curious. I was recently in Ukraine. I saw a lot of old Soviet era railway cars and things like this, and I did a whole pot on it. Um, but I'm just curious to know, as you're you're a, 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 an admiral and you went on board, you know, you're accustomed to American vessels. You go aboard this old uh, Soviet vessel. What struck you? I mean, was you said nice touches? Like, really, fill this in for me. Color, so, color, I mean, color, I mean color. Uh, what was it you like? Know, where you, where you, where you enter? There's a, you know, one of the thwartship passages had, you know, curved staircases going with a, you know, a two two story open atrium sort of space. You would never see that uh, built into a ship unless you were, unless you were building it as a point of as a showpiece in some way. National so this was, pride. yeah, so, so it's a national pride. And I expect that not, that it was, uh, I don't expect all Soviet ships of the era were built with that level of, of, of elegance. Um, but it was, uh, you know, so those were the, those were the types of touches. The normal navigation instruments and that sort of thing are familiar to, you know, the, 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 the you know, worldwide state of the art is more or less the same um, through time. And so I recognize them as the types of features that were, still existent on the ship that I first reported to. Um, wow. That's, that's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. I, I There's so many, we, so many great topics. Uh, I wanted to c- return a little bit to the topic of your discussion with the coastal state managers here at the conference, and it really has to do with, uh, I wonder if you could introduce our audience a little bit to Digital Coast and Now Coast, the products that NOAA sure. is producing. Uh, these are incredibly useful data sets that are made available to coastal managers all around the country. Uh, tell us a little bit about Digital Coast and Now Coast. Sure. Uh, they, they're, they're both sort of data portals um, that we make uh, mostly federally uh, collected data available in standardized formats that are discoverable and easily ingestible into GIS systems and other decision support systems that right, you might Info use. or whatever mapping technology you're exactly. working with. And so exactly. for the general public, they can go to Digital Coast online and mm-hmm. look at the data sets that you provide. Now, this is designed for professional usage, you say. It's, it's a geo-reference data that can be mapped with incredible accuracy. It's fantastic stuff to do deal with, but, but it is available to the general public. Is it something that... You know, if your mother wanted to take a look and go, what do you do every day? It, would it be something if she went to, she could appreciate in some way the general public? Uh, on there these are sites? some. There are some parts of both uh, Digital Coast and Now Coast that are uh, that are useful immediately to be able to look at data and gain some uh, initial understanding. Um, and in particular with Now Coast, where there's a lot of real-time data sets for for weather data sets and oceanographic data sets. Uh, and storm surge and and uh, watches and warnings and those types of things that are really geared toward mm. you know toward human understanding and those right. are so those are those are really uh, accessible to the to the public but they can also be taken to the next level by by geographic professionals who have access to better tools and right. integrated into a much more uh, a much more sophisticated decision support systems. So, I mean, if you wanted to get to know your coastal, if you're looking at coastal property in Broward County, Florida, or you're in Okaloosa County, Florida, or you're on the Texas coast and gee whiz, wonder what this coastline has really been like, uh, taking a look at Now Coast or Digital Coast can give you access to information on a fairly sophisticated level. If you're making a big investment decision, it doesn't seem to be unreasonable that you would do that. 
Sure, and, and uh, you know, I, I think it's I think it is smart to uh, for each of us to understand the geography in which we're investing, uh, because there there are a lot of different types of vulnerabilities, and there are some that are unique to the coast that that yeah. uh, that that, uh, that that we don't get inland. Um, some of the coastal hazards are are uh, are are not only periodic, but uh, but but in some cases increasing with climate change and and the and the rising rising seas and subsiding coasts in some cases. You know, you mentioned you talked about sea level rise a little bit in your presentation, but also talked about the contra- contribution made by subsidence. And I think in Louisiana, you said between three millimeters and twelve millimeters. I guess a year of actual subsidence, which is you know imperceptible to folks who have got a piece of property, whether the water is coming up because the land's going down or the water, I mean, the same effect, but the, the accuracy and understanding of subsidence is a pretty tricky uh, thing to do because of the, the complexity of the data that you need to really see it. Can you talk about what NOAA is doing uh, in that regard? Sure. Um, yeah. Do it. Teasing out the, as you say, what matters to the to the coastal community is the relative change of the water and the land. It doesn't really matter uh, right. whether the land is the water is coming up or the land is going down, except if you want to be able to predict it. Um, and then the phenomena, the underlying phenomena, are very different. So we talk when we when we you know we when we talk about the the risk of sea level rise, we look at the IPCC curves, right? right. And those are. You know, those are international. Those are global in nature and may have uh, some some limited geographic scope, but they do not um, they don't account for uh, for subsidence. So, uh, if you 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 know you you brought up coastal Louisiana, which has uh, not only a very high rate of of uh, of, of subsidence, um, and and over I've I've spent a lot of time down on the down on the delta there, and the and the you know there are roads paved roads with lines on them underwater. Underwater at low, t- you know, at low tide, wow. um, there are, there's a navy base um, that is underwater, right from World War II. So this is not; these are within lifetime right. um, massive changes to the coast um, that are the, in that in that case driven by subsidence. But the variability in subsidence is not; it's not just all of Louisiana is sinking. There's some ca- there's some parts that are sinking much faster than others, and we need to understand which are the fast. Right. Sinking places and the and the less uh, the the more stable parts of the coast, um, in order to really guide our infrastructure investments, yeah. um, and, you know, going going forward as we as we adapt to to uh, to climate change and, right. and to the changing world in the next in the makes next perfect decades. sense. It does matter as you're saying to be able to tease out the difference between increases in water level and decreases in land elevation. If you're building a pipeline that's going to go across the Mississippi River Delta or along the coast of Louisiana. You need to know the shifting of that land mass because it'll affect the stability and I think the safety of the infrastructure. This would be roads or pipelines or any of this kind of stuff. And it, how is that done? I, it just seems, is it satellite data? What is the yeah. technique so nowadays the, so, to understand subsidence? Yeah, and before, the, before the era of GPS, um, it was really hard to make a dis- meaningful distinction, uh, we used the water level as the datum right. to to then measure against the land, and so you would just be all you could really measure was the difference. Um, since since the the GPS constellation went up, um, we've put in a, a global network of ground observing stations 
Um, uh, in the U.S., we have a network called the CORES Network, continuously operating reference stations. And those stations are logging GPS data all the time. And because they get so many observations, they can, they can reduce the error down to, to sub-millimeter level. Wow. So that in these stations, because they've been there for now decades, we can see the vertical move, movement of the land at those stations um, and that's the that's the component of subsidence. Now, although there are thousands of them, um, they do not capture the variability of subsidence mm-hmm. along the coast because there's a lot of local effects from groundwater pumping or oil pumping or right. or, or 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 other other or other phenomena that are that are either natural or man-made. And so, in order to increase that resolution, we're experimenting with some satellite techni- technology from NASA. Um, NASA has done a few a few studies, and we're trying to figure out how to extend those to be meaningfully um, in meaningfully usable information for wow. coastal managers. Um, and and so the synthetic aperture radar from the from the satellite can measure um, you know very accurately the change the vertical change in the in the land motion. If we tie that to the long term stations, we can we can right. anchor it. To, we can it. We can yeah we can anchor it all to to a good long term trends, um, but really tease out the variability um, even at the sort of neighborhood level um, in in subsidence rates. Wow. Well, that's Admiral Smith. This is what I think is is so fabulous about the work and the investment that we make as a country in NOAA and in this data. We have a lot of tough decisions on the American shoreline, lots of economic interests there, whether it's in shipping or in real estate or in tourism. And uh, the decision makers who have to deal with the complex interplay of whether we should dredge a port deeper, should we put an LNG terminal terminal hill, do we put it offshore, all of those kind of questions require a sophisticated understanding of this very dynamic environment. And it seems to me what you guys do is make sure we have the best damn data and make us a little bit smarter and give us a chance to make better decisions. Ultimately, you guys are the underlying foundation of data and information and understanding on really complex dynamics on the American shoreline or shorelines around the world. Going back to Jefferson. Yeah, delivering they, they, that they, they knew that the OG uh, Jefferson knew you had to understand these. We were a waterway dominant country. We were a, a maritime power before we were a land power. All of our trade was uh, shipping. I mean, the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway and all the Erie Canal and all this was all water. And Jefferson knew we had to have some damn smart people figuring out how to deal with it. And I think that's what you guys do. Is that fair? I mean, that's that's, that's fair. Well, that's our that's our that's our legacy, and I I'm I'm I'm, I'm thrilled that the that the, 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 the these core these core services uh, continue to be relevant to guide the, the sort of national conversation about some of the more the, some of the really trickiest management decisions that we have to make. Well, I think uh, I have one more topic, Good. I, and I hope you've got a few more minutes. I know the conference is going on here, but I really would like to ask you. Uh, about uh, the work that you're doing in the in the blue water world offshore, sure. um, and in particular, the emerging interest around the world in deep sea mining for strategic minerals, manganese, nickel, all kinds of really important uh, resources are on the seabed around the world. Uh, there is a growing economic interest. It's starting to look. I've seen pictures of the of the mining equipment that's going to be operating on the seafloor now. It seems to be taking shape. Can you talk about that as an emerging industry and what NOAA and the National Ocean Service is is charged with doing in that sphere? 
Sure. Um, so let me let me just put a little bit of context yeah. around around global ocean mapping. So I said earlier that the United States was forty percent mapped. Um, the world's oceans are fifteen percent mapped. Um, and so in in huge sections of the of the of the offshore uh, you know blue water world, we have as no measurements. Uh, no direct measurements of the of the depth of the water, much less the the composition of the seabed. Um, there's a there's a big international effort to try to get a good base map of the ocean built. Um, it's a it's a it's a project of the of Jebco, which itself is a hundred years old. Uh, the general bathymetric chart of the ocean, um, and we have a big push in a project called Seabed 2030. That will that with the aim of mapping the world's uh, oceans uh, by 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 2030, and when we when we look at the reasons why this has societal value, now this is global societal value. Right. Um, there are there are a number of big ones, um, and I will get to the one you asked about in a minute. Um, but but in order to f- understand um, the the global climate, we need to understand the global ocean. So the heat, con- the heat yeah. content of the ocean is a thousand times more than the heat content of the atmosphere. So we think about the air getting warmer right. when we think about climate change. It's the ocean getting warmer that's actually happening. When we think about carbon loading um, from, from fossil fuels, most of that carbon ends up in the ocean and is, is ocean acid, you know causes ocean acidification yeah, a real thing uh, and so those so those those two examples in order to understand how that's going to play out in in the earth over the course of the next few decades we need to understand how the ocean works and how the circulation of the ocean works and we cannot understand the circulation of the ocean uh, in enough detail without detailed bathymetry. Right. Uh, and so this, so that's, so that's one application. Wow. Um, the one you asked about is is, is seabed minerals. Um, th- some of the seabed minerals are in national waters, um, and then and so it is a so it is a sort of a national uh, right. effort. And within some, our EEZ, our 200 mile exclusive economic zone. Exactly. We got, um, we got something to say about that. With with some, ex- you know, and we have we have uh, put it. We we're preparing. A claim uh, to extend it further in some cases, but the but um, when it's in national waters, it is clearly a U.S. national resource. Uh, when it's in international waters, uh, it's ma- there is a you know under the law of the sea treaty uh, negotiated back in the 1970s, um, and coincidentally, my grandfather was a lawyer that worked on developing the, law, right? the, the law of the sea. How about that? How cool How about that? that? And uh, and so he uh, you know he and the folks that were that were working this at the time realized that there needed to be some sort of of regulatory body or some sort of arbiter for managing seabed resources. Uh, uh, beyond beyond national waters, and set up this this group called the International Seabed Authority, which is based of all places in Kingston, Jamaica. Right, and, and I've seen I've seen these incredible maps of huge swaths of the Pacific Ocean where there are claims made, mineral mm-hmm. claims now all across the Pacific, you know, out to Hawaii, uh, huge areas that are being claimed by, in some cases, national in- interests, cons- uh, you know, government led consortiums. 
and in some cases private investors or private uh, can you talk about sort of the sure. where, we, where are we in so the, the claiming of the so seabed? while we have we, you know while we've recognized the potential of this for 50 years um, it's really difficult to work in thousands of meters down to mine this and so it has to be really valuable right. um, and what it what's really changed in the last decade in my view is is these trace minerals um, yeah. that are 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 that are really critical to our modern world. If you if you were to, for instance, look at all the ingredients of an iPhone, right. Um, and, right, and 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 where did they come from? Some of those are really rare and are only available in some very difficult parts of the earth. Right. The rare land. earth minerals. The um, Congo is the, some of the conflict areas that are difficult to acquire these very strategic. Materials exactly. So they may not be available to to United States industry, or they may yeah. not be. Um, and so, so there are deposits of these uh, on the seabed, and 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 that's where the the sort of really big focus is for sort of big national interests and 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 commercial interests. Um, and so the technology for for mining them has has improved a lot in recent years. Um, but where where my agency is involved mm-hmm. is understanding what the resource is that the United States has. We don't know what seabed resources there are in U.S. waters. Uh, and so until we do, we can't, we can't start to think about how to, how to, how to manage sustainably, uh, ma- you know, use those resources. Right. And so there, um, there, there, there's an, an interagency discussion going on on how to, um, on how to get the United States waters mapped, and we're tying into this seabed 2030 goal, right. um, because nobody's going to map the United States water but us, and so we we, we need to get our own waters done um, by by 2030, and and the seabed minerals are a key part of that. Um, is and we do the base map first, and then where the conditions are right for seabed minerals, um, we can go back and with some with some more detailed exploration tools, um, can can you know d- determine in the actual mineral content wow. uh, that's available. Are we still the leaders in international ocean mapping, do you think, the United States? Where are we in the pantheon of countries that are out there trying to understand these issues? Are, so I know it, we've been a leader historically. I would say we are. Um, I'm I'm very proud of NOAA as a as a as an internationally recognized agency. Um, we we punch way above our weight uh, when it comes to technological development and international policy. Uh, and development of development of of of, of, of new approaches, uh, and so um, so I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm very very uh, very very proud of that. I, I do represent the United States internationally, and, and so um, uh, through the International Hydrographic Organization and regional commissions, um, we we work a lot with our neighbors on advancing uh, ocean mapping worldwide. Fantastic, ladies and gentlemen, Admiral uh, Shepard Smith the director of the Office of Coast Survey at NOAA. And uh, what a pleasure to have you on the show. If people wanted to learn more about what your organization is up to and doing, uh, how can they find out more? Sure. Uh, well, start with Google. It's probably easier to find than uh, than, than for me to describe on our website. Um, but but we have quite a few resources uh, available, both about how we do things, um, but also um, but also access to the data itself uh, on on our on our website. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, the Admiral 
from South Padre Island at the Coastal States Organization meeting. Thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast, and we look forward to learning more about what you guys do as we go out through the year. Nice talking to you.